Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Sang. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian American Center. I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century America. Um, I focus on Asian immigration and U.S.-Asia relations, and I'm currently writing a history of Asian American evangelicalism since the 1970s. And I'm Tim Tseng, Pacific Area Director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity. So today we're really excited to have Helen Lee. Um, Helen is the Associate Director of Strategic Partnerships and Initiatives at InterVarsity Press, where she previously served as a marketing director and an acquisitions editor. Helen also oversees content and resource development at Missio Alliance. So Helen is a longtime writer in Christian spaces, starting with her time at Christianity Today in the mid-1990s. And she's contributed to a number of books, devotionals, and Bibles, including Growing Healthy Asian American Churches, and The Missional Mom. And Helen is currently co-authoring a book with Michelle Reyes on the race-wise family. Um, and this book will be out in 2022. Helen, I think I first met you at an L Squared event about 20 years ago. Uh, now for the listeners information, L Squared was a series of national summits for Asian American Christian leaders in the late 1990s through the early 2000s. And these summits were organized by DJ Zhuang and the L Squared Foundation. And I think they were quite significant for Asian American Christians. Yes. And we can probably talk about this a little bit more later if we get to it. Uh, and the, a, a network of nationally recognized uh, leaders were, was firmed up and which led to uh, some collective actions such as a protest against rickshaw rally and the open letter to evangelicals. Um, but for now, I, I remember Helen meeting you sh there shortly after your silent exodus story for Christianity Today was published. But my most memorable recollection was when you visited the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, mm -hmm. uh, shortly after you published Missional Mom and you gave a great presentation and, and excited so many uh, people who, who came to hear um, your insights about how to be missional and, to, and being a parent. So welcome. It's so good to see and hear you again. Thanks, Tim. I was so grateful for that invitation. You were the very, very first book event I ever had in my entire life. So I was very grateful for that opportunity and had such a great time. So thanks for having me here and for that as well. Great. Wonderful. Let's begin by talking uh, with you about your 1996 story for Christianity Today, Silent Exodus. Now, this story yes. has had a profound impact on Asian American <laughs> and evangelicals. Uh, so let me start by asking you, Helen, in the middle of the 1990s, what were you doing at the time and, and what were you noticing about Asian American Christians or Christianity before writing Silent Exodus? Yes. Yeah, so at that time, I had been working at Christianity Today for a few years. I had started right at the very bottom of that masthead, got a job as an editorial assistant and uh, had let them know right from the beginning I was interested in doing more than just being the editorial assistant. I wanted to get into writing and editing. So they hired me with that knowledge that I had some of those aspirations. And then over the years was able to move into some of those spaces, initially doing some news reporting for the news team and eventually got a chance to do editing on the feature side. So I was at that place when the ideas came into my head as I was continuing to stay in touch with various friends in Asian American Christian spaces that 
there was not really hardly any mention about Asian American Christianity in the pages of CT at all. I was just seeing, you know, year after year as I was working there that you would see all kinds of news about all aspects of evangelicalism, pretty much almost entirely white, and some mention of, of Black church contexts as well, but very little, if pretty much nothing in the Asian American space, which of course bothered me. <laughs> so I had that opportunity from just being present there to continue to raise the question, when are we going to do something about Asian American Christianity? And of course, at that time, what we were seeing and noticing was what we have now called the silent exodus. And that is not my term, by the way. Um, I will not take credit for it, although many people sometimes think that I came up with it. It was not my phrase. I had heard it from Dr. Peter Cha, of course, who many of us know, who currently teaches at Trinity International University. And he will tell you that it wasn't his phrase either. Um, there is some debate about who was the originator of that phrase. There was another pastor whose name escapes me now, I believe it might've been Minho Sung. I don't know if I have his name correct. He might've been uh, the person, I'm not entirely sure. So maybe Jane, when you do your history of Asian American evangelicalism, evangelicalism, you can finally track down like who was the person who actually used that phrase for the first time. But it was certainly something we were all talking about. I felt like those of us who were Asian American Christians, Asian American Christian leaders, were seeing the after effects of the second generation and beyond of Asian Americans growing up and not necessarily returning to their home immigrant churches. I mean, that was certainly my experience of having grown up in the Korean church, not having really any desire to go back to a Korean church context in my 20s and beyond. So I knew that dynamic personally. I knew so many of my friends were in that same situation. And it felt like there was a, a sense of, of caution and concern with other Asian American leaders about this phenomenon. And it was different from what you often see, I think, in larger white evangelical spaces where as kids grow up, they go through kind of a natural phase of moving on into college and young adulthood and perhaps struggling with their faith and leaving behind Christianity for a while. You see some of that, right, in the larger evangelical spaces, but there was something distinct and different that we are all noticing happening with Asian American Christians that went beyond just a generational moving away from the faith. So I felt like that warranted some reporting. It warranted some sort of mention. It was the kind of thing that felt like it needed to be written about in CT. So, I mean, this is a God thing. I don't know, to be perfectly frank, if CT would have covered that phenomenon if someone hadn't been there in the staff, you know, present to be able to advocate for that article. I don't know if they would have written about it. Maybe eventually they would have, but it has been for me a real lesson in the power of representation and not that representation is everything, but it certainly makes a difference. You know, when you have people in places and spaces and uh, whether it's the media um, or other areas of organizational leadership, there is something about having presence uh, in these places and spaces that can have an impact on what is covered, you know, what is published, what is talked about, what is mentioned. So it's not to my credit, but I do feel like the fact that God gave me that opportunity to be there at that time uh, was what certainly helped uh, there to be some awareness you know, within CT that the Asian American church uh, was something worth covering. And I was one of the very, very few Asian American staffers at Christianity Today, at least on the magazine's side of things. They had a Japanese American reporter decades before I had gotten there. 
I got a chance to work there. Eventually Morgan Lee joined the CTCEF after I left, but that is uh, pretty much the extent. I could be wrong, but I, I don't recall there being a lot of other Asian Americans you know, on the staff of the flagship evangelical magazine. For what it's worth, uh, that's where it started for me was being able to be present and being able to pitch that article and then being asked to write it. Wow, Helen, so much of what you're sharing does resonate with me. I'm also Korean American. I grew up in a Korean immigrant church in Northern New Jersey. And once I left for college, I never went back um, to a Korean immigrant church ever again. And I think the only times I've been back really are mm -hmm. when I visit home and Christmas services mm -hmm. would, you know, my mom finagles all of us uh, into going to her church service yes. and we dutifully sit through um, many hours of, of, of Korean service. Um, so, I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's a much longer conversation we can all have. And, and it's not just a phenomenon, obviously, unique to Korean Americans, as you said. Right. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about your experience at CT during the 1990s. I had a conversation about a month ago, a phone conversation with um, a Korean American who's currently working at a different evangelical publication. This is 2020 at that point. And she was actually saying some of the same things. Um, <laughs> which is in some ways, I mean, I'm very glad that she's there and I'm so grateful that you for your presence at CT in the 90s and huh. even just your presence, your ongoing presence within these very white evangelical spaces. And it's, yeah, because the person I was talking to last month was basically saying, you know, if she didn't cover, because she called me to talk about Asian American evangelicalism, some of the things I was finding in my current research. And mm. she said something kind of very similar to what you said, like if, if she doesn't write about it, she doesn't think anybody will. And so mm -hmm. she feels this kind of um, responsibility at the same time that I think for her, she also talked about how she didn't want to be pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. And so she writes like a variety of other topics as well, because yeah. she wants to be sure that, you know, people don't see her as, you know, I think it's the representation, the burden that many folks feel in fields mm -hmm evangelical spaces, but also just secular spaces, right? Like in, a, right. in my history department, like in, you know, in, in our many workspaces. So that's a really heavy burden, <laughs> I think, to carry. Yes. And that you've been carrying for a long time. You know, the etymology of the term silent exodus, like I've seen it, the earliest I've seen it so far is 1994 in the LA Times. Um, mm -hmm. but, but when I talk to like Chinese American pastors, especially older ones, you know, some of them are like, oh, no, that's not new. That happened in the 1970s in the Chinese American churches, right? So for them, it's like, ah, right. Um, it's a much, much older phenomenon. Mm. But um, I did happen to see there was a blog post where I saw one of your comments. This is, this is how like creepy the internet can be sometimes. <laughs> so I remember reading a blog post comment where you talked about how your term of choice was actually silent exile. Yeah. And that I think in this comment I saw, um, but that term... CT folks hadn't wanted you to use that term. So there was a conversation. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more about kind of what you meant by kind of the term silent exile versus silent exodus. And then maybe if you can remember some of the dynamics around that conversation, I, I would be really interested to hear that. Wow, I completely forgot about that conversation. See, <laughs> my, my memory is fading. But yes, you're right. And again, I don't think that that term was even, um, was mine originally speaking. I believe that originated from, again, conversations that I was having with other Asian American leaders. And of course, I can't go back and remember exactly with whom I was having them. I'm sure Peter Cha was part of them because Peter Cha tends to be parts of many of these kinds of conversations. But the thinking that we 
had at the time was the whole idea of the exodus, right? Is that you're going from a place of, of being enslaved, a place of being captured to a better place, to freedom, to liberation. And that's not necessarily what we were seeing, right? In terms of what was happening with second generation and beyond Asian Americans. It felt like they were just disappearing or they were going to places that were, nece- were not necessarily better places in terms of a Christian experience. So so Exodus to me felt like it was a little misleading, but by that point, the phrase had somehow gotten in people's vernacular, you know, in the way that phrases sometimes can become part of the conversation. So it was hard to change the minds of folks at CT who felt like, well, this is the phrase that has been used already. It seems to be the phrase that people are using. So if we try to use a different phrase now, it doesn't make any sense. So it's kind of one of those things where you, one of the many, to be honest, you know, one of the many battles sometimes you have to fight when you are trying to deal with that burden representation and wanting to be able to bring nuance into the conversation and wanting to bring different perspectives into the conversation, but uh, you have to sometimes fight against whatever the larger or dominant culture feels or believes about your particular c- cultural context. So that was one example where I lost that conversation, or I lost that battle, so to speak. And it, you know, it wasn't, it felt like it wasn't such a hill to die on because I understood the, the rationale for why to continue using silent exodus. But I did make the point, you know, in our conversations internally that this is not, a, it's not a perfectly accurate depiction of a phrase that describes what's actually happening, but it was the phrase that had been used to that point. So we went with it. Was the term exile more like, did you prefer that term because it kind of suggests that folks like don't really have places to go, right? Because mm-hmm. yes. Um, yes. that's another question I had. It's where did people go? Because I think there was some of that in the piece, right? But um, yeah. the question I always wondered, it's, it's, I think you talk about how, you know, you have second generation folks leaving the immigrant church, but then where do they go? Some of them do go to other kinds of churches, but then, you know, you also mm-hmm. mentioned that many of them just leave the church altogether, right? And that's yeah. a whole other part of the story that, you know, I think no matter what, you know, not, no matter if you're white, Asian, whatever, right, would seem like mm-hmm. a very tragic, right, development yeah. you know, for evangelical yeah. leaders. So there's that piece and then just the other piece I was wondering about is just, you know, in writing this piece, you, you had an audience. I mean, who was the audience that you were envisioning? Because, you know, 1990s CT readers, mm-hmm. I'm guessing these are overwhelmingly mm-hmm. white evangelical readers. And Indeed. You know, I, I'm sure you could talk more about this and I'm sure you could talk at length about this. This is something I'm really wrestling through again, like in my book, which is an academic book, right? So I'm writing, I'm writing mm-hmm. for scholars, many of whom are white, but, mm-hmm. but I don't just want to write yes. for them. Um, and so, yeah. So I, I also often wonder about how folks in your position, right, negotiated those audiences. Hmm. Well, the audience at CT was absolutely overwhelmingly white. I probably would venture to say even today in at least the print magazine version. So there are different audiences depending on the medium. But in terms of the actual subscriber base of CT, although I don't have access to any of that data now, my conjecture would be it still leans overwhelmingly white. I don't know the numbers, but certainly in the mid nineties, absolutely, it was largely a white audience. So for me, there was a a feeling of responsibility to bring some education to those white evangelical leaders and readers to say, this is a part of your family, you know, very little about, Uh, you know, very little about the nuances, you know, very little about uh, anything beyond this phrase, Asian American and how complex it is and how the 
issues are so different, you know, depending on even what segment of Asian American Christianity we're talking about. So, so there was for me a real, I don't know, a burden to make sure that our white evangelical leaders understood more about Asian Americans and Asian American Christianity. So they were in large part a primary leadership. And the point of the article for me was really to make sure that our leadership in the evangelical church just understudy a little bit, just a little bit. It was like 1500 words. So it wasn't going to do everything, but at least had some knowledge about the issues facing as part of their own church family. But of course there was that equal desire to represent in some way, shape or form, be a voice for somehow be a presence in that Christian media space for Asian American Christians. So there was also that secondary uh, important burden I had to make sure that we were somehow represented in the pages of this of this magazine. But yeah, the readership, you know, to your original question was, was largely for a white audience. And I think it continues to be a largely white audience at CT. So there's always that feeling of doing two things at once, right? Both trying to bring some education and knowledge to the majority culture, as well as trying to in some way, shape or form represent you know, who we are and what issues we're dealing with. So it had that dual purpose, but I don't, you know, I don't know where it had more impact in the end. I think that's something that we were probably going to discuss at some point, like what kind of impact do I feel like the article had? I feel like in the balance of things, that was one of the articles I would imagine that a typical CT reader was kind of flipping through the magazine, may have stumbled upon it and may have just zipped right through. May have seen the pictures and seen the heading, the headline and said, uh, not for me. Like, it's not really something I truly care about. I have a feeling that a good number of CT readers fell into that space because the people I heard from were Asian Americans. I mean, the people I heard from and continue to hear from to this day are Asian Americans who either remember that article, read that article, felt like it's in some way, you know, named a dynamic that they were familiar with and they, that they wanted to see reported on or who felt like it somehow expressed their own experiences as an Asian American Christian. I think I heard from two white evangelical leaders who said, thank you for writing this article. One um, was the president of CT, who uh, at the time was Harold Myra, retired now, but he said, thank you to me for being willing to, to write on this and report on it. And the other was Mark Knoll, who is a historian now at Regent College. He was a preeminent historian at Wheaton, went to Notre Dame and now is at Regent. And he did, took the time to like, write an actual letter, you know, a postcard or a letter and send it to me in the mail, which I was, I think I still have that somewhere <laughs> in my house because I was so touched that he would take the time just to read it, first of all, just to be able to say, yeah, this is important. Like this story is important for evangelicalism that we acknowledge and are aware of what's happening, not just in white evangelicalism, but in the broader evangelical family as well. So I was really appreciative that he took the time to do that. But those kinds of comments were in the minority. Most of the folks I heard from were other Asian American Christians. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing about that. I, I'm going to explore that a little bit further, but I was also thinking as you were describing the debate over the, the title that uh, it sounds like to me, if today in today's vernacular, silent exodus is more clickbaity. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I remember that. If, if you had kept it as silent exile, even though that was my experience, mm. exile really describes my experience. So for many, like myself, a Chinese Americans who, I didn't exactly leave the Chinese church. Mm -hmm. I left for a moment, but still have gone back. Yeah. But even coming back, it's still I still feel like an exile mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. Chinese American Christians are usually a minority in the Chinese church. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so consequently, not much voice, 
feel I, I still don't feel like I totally belong. Yeah. And I think that that's so exile, I think is a much more appropriate term, but right. in any case, right. let me see if I can stretch that conversation about uh, impact a little further, if you, if you don't mind. I'm, 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 mm-hmm. I know that you mentioned that you had mostly responses from Asian Americans. Can you share a little bit about those responses? I mean, it's two parts. I mean, what kind of responses surprised you, what annoyed you? And ultimately, looking back, what kind of impact do you think the story had on both the Asian American community and mm. white evangelicals? So I feel like it was obviously published during a time, no social media or anything like that. But I still, to this day, get people who will email me <laughs> or reach out to me or meet me and say, oh, you're the person who wrote that article. Or they'll tell me they quoted it or that sort of thing, which again, it's amazing to me. I kind of wish I had written a better article. <laughs> Like, <laughs> oh I know it would have been this thing that, that people continue to circle back towards. And again, I think it's not because it was that great an article. It's because it was the only one, you know, it was the only thing out there that people had to even point to, whether it was fully accurate, whether it fully represented what was happening for that particular person at the time. It was something, and unfortunately, the only thing, uh, at least published in a mainstream Christian publication, so I think the reason why people still remember it is that it was a moment in evangelical history where Asian Americans felt seen. And there is something about that experience of finally feeling like we're not invisible anymore that I think had an impact for many people in our generation who got a chance to encounter that particular piece or who found it and discovered it you know, later on. And that has been true for me, not just for those who are in my exact demographic age-wise, but even for folks who are younger, it still does amaze me that I find people who are 10 years younger than me, 20 years younger than me, who say, wow, that piece you wrote in 1996, you know, I remember that piece, it spoke to me or it named my reality. And that's, that's not a credit to me. I almost think it's actually the opposite. It almost feels to me a bit of a, a shame for the church at large that there were so few resources out there. There were few, so few places that were feeling like it was important you know, to write about the Asian American church, such that that one article you know, has this endearing appeal. I don't know. I, to me, there's a part of that that feels sad that there's not more, you know? I mean, it has to start somewhere, but, you know, we can get to this when we talk about the 2014 article, but those two articles, it feels like there should be so much more. And so, um, you know, why, why there are, there's a dearth of writing and coverage about the Asian American church and Asian American Christianity. Well, that can open up a whole conversation about, again, representation and who makes the decisions and who are the gatekeepers and, you know, how does power have an Im- impact on what we see, what we read, what we think, what we know? Uh, that's the whole conversation about white evangelicalism in general and how we as Asian Americans are still continuing to try to, I don't know, fight our way to be heard and to be seen. I know that for myself personally, my re- reaction was the same. I did feel like for the first time in the white evangelical world, there was attention given to the Asian American experience and, and our and we really belong in that conversation. Although I have to say you're right as well, <laughs> at least in my, as I've looked over the years of CT's publications about Asian Americans, surely after um, you wrote that piece, there, there were a few other articles 
And every time there was like something like the top 25 young Asian Americans, there was an the article about that. My thought was that, well, you know, the, the vision of Asian Americans they had was really centered around Chicagoland. Mm. There, was, there was almost no perception of the, the, these Asian Americans on the West Coast. <laughs> so so, so, at, the, so I, at the time, yeah, I, I was thinking, yeah, I'm, I celebrate that, but I can tell that there's still something going on where the ability to go beyond the local advocates. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm not even sure what article you, you are referring yeah. to. I'm going to have to go back and take a look. The age, the Silent right. Exodus article was my last piece before I actually left CT. Yeah. Uh, I got gotten married and moved to the mm-hmm. East Coast or back to the East Coast. So I uh, I don't know what article you're referring to. Now I'm curious to go back and try to find it. <laughs> it's okay. I, not that important. It, it wasn't what you would consider the, um, a really helpful article. It was just like the top mm-hmm. 25 list. And I thought that that was really, you know, silly. But in any case, <laughs> it, it was, it, <laughs> well, I'm sure it probably. I mean, it was related to you know who you know yeah. and 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 one's networks, and that's so true even today. Yes. If, like, how do people uh, get either jobs in media or jobs in Christian evangelical organizations? You know, there's so much about who you yeah. know and and where have Asian Americans or other people of color just been either denied or uh, have had less access because those networks are not in place with the white evangelical power structures that exist, right? So and it feeds into things like that, right? Into, into articles and features like that where, well, you know, we know this small group of other Asian American Christians here in Chicago. And so I can, I can easily imagine how yeah. an article like that would, would emerge, yeah. But this fast forward to 2014, 20, 2014, yeah, 2014. Yeah. in that intervening period, a number of activities happened, uh, which I think you can, you were also very involved with them. But then there was this sequel, the, the, this uh, sequel that came out. And let me see, the name of it was called Silence No More, <laughs> Asian Americans, <laughs> Silent No More. So 20 years later, uh, CT publishes the sequel. Can you say a little bit more about that and, <laughs> you know, just some background and observations? Uh-oh, oh, I can. Comes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, of course, you know, I kept in touch with the CT colleagues over the years and I had encouraged them multiple times, you know, it'd be nice if there were some sort of follow-up and I wasn't even saying that I had to write it, just somebody, like there's plenty of people who can write some sort of follow-up to what we did in 1996 or, or at least something that acknowledges that Asian American Christianity is not just this thing that we're going to cover, you know, once in a blue moon, can you please be thinking about ways to continue to bring more attention to Asian American Christians, Asian American Christian leaders, Asian American issues, et cetera. And as you mentioned, there's like a couple of things over time that that eventually bubbled up, but it took so much effort. And partly because again, there wasn't really anybody on staff, you know, who could really continue to grind that wheel internally and say, we got to keep talking about these kinds of issues. I often talk with folks there about, can we do more with representation on the board level? If you looked at that whole masthead and you saw all the different board advisors or contributing editors or whatever it might be, um, you would never or very, very rarely even see Asian American representation there. So it was one of these things where I was a constant conversation over the years where I would ping different people there I knew to say, hey, it's, it's, would be great to see something again on Asian American Christianity. And it didn't, it, it took until we got to 2013, which was when uh, the open letter on Asian American Christianity emerged. And that was an outgrowth of a number of different things. It was a, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back after we'd had 
a couple of years of one incident after another incident after another incident of either cultural insensitivity or prejudice or stereotyping that was happening in prominent evangelical places, spaces, and publications. So, I mean, we don't have to rehash all that history here and now, but I think the, the, the last of those was an incident that happened at a large Christian conference for pastors where there was a racially insensitive skit that was um, that was played as kind of a joke. Ha ha, you know, isn't this so funny? And there was uh, an Asian American woman there, Christine Lee, who is actually the first Korean American priest in the Episcopal Church. She as a minister at All Angels in New York City, who was pre she was present at that particular conference and made various folks aware that this is happening and this is not right. So long story short there is that you know, Kathy Kong, who some of you know, but maybe all of you know, Kathy Kong, the author of Raising Voice, longtime university staff worker and activist, she and I were talking about this latest incident and she had just gone through the whole experience of trying to raise awareness of the incident with Rick Warren and his particular ways of trying to use inappropriate humor, pictures of communist China Red Army to try to make a point that did not go well. And she and I were feeling frustrated that, you know what, we can each say our things on social media and raise awareness of this incident and that incident, but it's not changing anything. <laughs> like it, th those moments come and go and different ones of us may raise our voices and, and get some traction and then it kind of disappears. So maybe we need something different this time. We felt like there was a need for a more coordinated kind of response. So anyway, that led to what became the open letter in 2013, where I think we ended up banding together with nearly, I don't know, 90 different Asian American leaders who all signed the initial letter as our statement out to the evangelical world of, like, this is enough. <laughs> enough is enough. I mean, we are not your punching bag anymore. You can't keep doing this and keep regarding Asian American culture, Asian culture the way you do and Asian Americans that you do. And it just felt like it's enough. enough was enough. So many of you, I didn't even sign that letter, which was great. And it was, I think, our kind of calling card to American evangelicalism to say enough is enough. Leading to then 2014, um, Christianity Today, finally said, yes, we should do another piece on Asian American Christianity. Because one of the things that we called for in 2013, we actually named CT. And we actually said there needs to be some sort of forum in Christianity today to talk about these kinds of issues. So they heard that. And uh, they came back to me in in the summer of 2014 to say, you know, we'd like to do a piece that's kind of a follow-up to that open letter. Um, hopefully in their minds, it wasn't just like checking a box, like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do this one thing. I hope they continue to try to do more. But in any case, um, they were willing to do essentially a cover story this time, which was a, which was more space and more pages, which was great uh, to dedicate to Asian American Christianity and what had happened in 18 years since I first read about it in 1996. So that's where I got a chance to see you again, Tim. You are so kind, gracious, and generous with your time to help orchestrate a number of gatherings for me, which is so helpful I when I got a chance to I go out. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> and those are great conversations. And yeah. it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was, how do I put this? It was, I was so, I was both grateful to have the chance to write about Asian American Christianity again. I was also frustrated it's like simultaneously frustrated that why did it take 18 years, you know, for all of a sudden there to be interest and only because we prodded, you know, CT through the open letter to just 
make them aware that this is something that is worth writing about. Not because of the open letter, it should be worth writing about no matter what. So I was carrying those things, you know, simultaneously. And I was also carrying the challenge of the fact that Asian American Christianity in 20 years had become so much more complicated in wonderful ways, just so much diversity of experiences. We had different generations now to talk about, so many different ethnic groups under that moniker of Asian American Christianity. The more I researched, and Jane, you know this as, a, as an academic, the more <laughs> content there was, the more stories that were unearthed. I mean, I just felt like, oh my goodness, I am not going to do this topic justice, not in one article. Granted, I have a few more words this time. I think I had maybe 3,000 to 4,000 versus the original article where I only had 1,500. But you cannot document fully uh, all of what's happening in Asian American Christianity in one story. So it was a mixed bag of feelings. You know, I was, I was glad to do it. I was glad to have a chance to revisit and reopen some of these conversations and just show hopefully progress in a lot of different ways, but at the same time, it always felt to me like, this is just a drop in the bucket. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what could be said and should be said. And, and so it was a a mixed bag experience for me. No, I just have to, I'm I'm chuckling to myself, um, because I I think (laughs) 3000 words, (laughs) right, (laughs) to encapsulate so much. And I mean, I'm having problems with 120,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That yes, Oxford yes, yes. to write this book, right? <laughs> about, right. About fifty-five years or sixty years of history. So I mean, yes, I understand your <laughs> challenge on a different mm-hmm. kind of uh, in a different in a different level. So I, I I give you lots of credit, and you know I was just looking back at my notes um, and my archives because I I have done searches of Christianity today looking for keywords like mm-hmm. Asian American. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know, one of the many fun things I get to do as an academic writing this book. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting how right after you left the magazine, mm-hmm. I do so there's like one piece in 2006 written by um, a white man. It's called The Tiger in the Academy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Asian Americans. and It's Tim Stafford's piece, I, I think. Yes, I'm looking at it right now. And it's about Asian Americans at elite colleges joining campus ministries. Yes. And, which I think, you know, is, you know, something that honestly, even academics noticed, right? So like, mm-hmm. I, I saw some religion folks write about like Rudy Busto, for example, at, at, at Stanford mm-hmm. at the time wrote a piece called The Gospel According to the Model Minority. He writes this in the 1990s, mm-hmm. right? Because he's like, mm-hmm. look, if you actually look around <laughs> who is in these campus parachurch organizations, it's, it's Asian Americans yeah. and people should, his plea was scholars should pay attention mm-hmm. to these groups because mm-hmm. they had just, particularly people who studied Asian America, they had, his mm-hmm. argument was they had generally just ignored mm-hmm. not just religion particularly, but Christianity. Like there was this yeah. run away um, from dealing with, Christianity and I know like David Yu at UCLA one of the very few Tim Tim like Tim's work there were a few folks still writing in the academy about Mm -hmm. these questions Mm -hmm. back then but there weren't that many and now I always found that really interesting so any pieces that I saw other than your pieces generally the pieces that I tended to see were tiny kind of short Mm -hmm. blurbs in the 90s and early 2000s usually about Urbana and like the number of Asian Americans at Urbana (laughs) Number of right. Asian Americans um, and in, in InterVarsity campus fellowships at various campuses, and I mean, <laughs> so clearly, right, white evangelicals, you know, were noticing because I guess they had kids in college <laughs> and things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they mm-hmm. might teach at Wheaton, but um, no, it, it's it's a really interesting kind of question to think about. I mean, 
I guess another question I had, because you talked about kind of the things that had changed since the 1990s by the time you wrote this piece in mm-hmm. 2014. So ethnic kind of representation, and it's true, right? You think about like South Asian populations really ballooned after mm-hmm. 90. Yeah. And I should say, you know, if you think about, if you put the 1990s and then 20, the, the 2010s into context, I mean, the 1990s is mm-hmm. really a ama- is a really kind of pivotal period for Asian American Christians because it's actually a major period for Asian American uh, demographics. Like yeah. I just I went back into my notes again and pulled this up. The Asian population in America grew by 70 percent in the 1980s. So the, the mm-hmm. 1980s and 1990s were huge mm-hmm. growth periods. Yes. And then by the time you get to 2014, I think by then Chinese and Indians were the two, I think, um, largest immigrant groups entering the United States. They even exceeded Mm -hmm. Mexicans for the first time Mm -hmm. in decades. And so there really is this huge kind of demographic shift in who's immigrating. And so that creates lots of changes Mm -hmm. for Asian America. But the political dimensions I I thought were so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I read and I kind of observed, where was I in 2013, 2014? I was finishing my PhD. I was on the East Coast um, Mm -hmm. observing all this from afar. Um, East Coast feels very far away (laughs) lots of these conversations sometimes. Yeah. I was observing them from kind of far away. And I wonder if you just say a little bit more about kind of what you thought had changed. So the demographics of who was a, who Asian America was, kind of the political sensibilities, maybe. I mean, in some ways, you did mention the role of social media, but you said that social media wasn't kind of the definitive change agent that many people think it is, right? Because I, I think oftentimes that's the argument people make. Oh, what's different? Mm-hmm. Twitter, you know, or like, Facebook, but those things alone, it sounds like in this case too, those things alone are not kind of the change makers. Mm-hmm. It's really people <laughs> driving a lot of these issues. And so I guess a two-part question. So um, leading up to Silent No More, kind of, you mm-hmm. know, if you could say a little bit more about what you think had changed yeah. in the evangelical world where people would be receptive, you know, actually take action when it comes to um, open letters like the one that you described. And then since Silent No More, since, so post 2014, yeah. since honestly, it feels like it's been a hundred years since 2014. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like know, literally right? Years. Um, so kind of before 2014 yeah. and then after 2014, like what do you think are some of the major changes we've seen within Asian American Christianity that have impacted kind of the communities, but also kind of how people write about the communities as well? Yeah. Well, I think a great way to see some of the differences is to see how people responded to that open letter in 2013 with how people responded to the statement against Asian American racism that came out from the Asian American Christian Collaborative in the midst of the pandemic. To me, that those two uh, incidences and then the resulting after effects are a really interesting case study in terms of how much has shifted. Because we had to work very hard to get to a thousand signatories for our open letter back in 2013. And that took months, I think, you know, to get to that point. It felt dangerous, I think, for some people to sign that letter. It felt risky for some people, especially if they weren't Asian American. So it took time, you know, to get to that point. It felt like at that point, a little more problematic to associate yourself, you know, with a letter like this. Whereas if you see the reaction to this, the statement on anti-Asian racism that came out um, in the midst of the pandemic, it was amazing to see the kind of traction and how much social media actually did very, very much help um, in that case. And I think the third thing I would say that was a key difference is the younger generation, like coming up and taking it and running with it. So there is, I think, as 
our children start to grow up and move into adulthood, I think they are more more activist oriented. They are less concerned about kind of sticking to the status quo per se and, and feeling some of the things that we might have felt as second generations who are trying to still find our way, still probably feeling some sense of and, and I know we continue to feel marginalization in various ways, but it just felt riskier to try to make a statement and and try to be activists in that way, where I don't think that is true for the younger generation. So you are seeing even in the last however many years it's been, seven years or so um, since 2013, that there's an activist sensibility that I think is just incredibly powerful for those who are, I guess they would be Gen Zers, millennials and Gen Zs, I think. And that generational shift is really clear to me. I mean, it's not that our generation is quiet, but I think that the next generation uh, has no fear. <laughs> and it is they are more sensitive and more vocal and more articulate um, in terms of understanding issues of race and justice in a way that I think that our generation is has been slower to learn for obvious reasons. I mean, we I grew up in a household that never talked about issues of race, identity, justice. None of those things were part of our conversation. They are things I eventually learned along the way, mainly through university. So university Christian fellowship and being involved in Ivy was a huge part of that. That formation, but it's taken a long time. Whereas I think the next generation, you know, they're they're already right there, you know, with some of these conversations and issues. So there are those are two, I think, interesting comparisons. If you looked at the reactions to the 2013 letter versus the reactions to the 2020 letter, and in terms of how white evangelicals responded to those statements, I mean, we had it just felt like. So many people to sign on in 2020, um, which was exciting to see. Like, glad to see that it felt a little more normalized, such that a, a white evangelical leader could put their name on that letter and not fear repercussion, or they didn't mind so much because it felt like it was the right thing to do. That's a huge change. It wasn't like that even in 2013. So a lot's happened even in the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. But my last question, which I think builds on what you were just sharing, is that looking ahead and thinking about the last 25 years, um, what can Asian American Christians learn from all that has transpired? And to add to that, and what aspirations or hopes do you have for the future of our Asian American uh, Christian, for Asian American Christians? Um, so as I was thinking about that question coming into this conversation, on one hand, there's signs of optimism and hope in a lot of ways, because you're starting to see so many key leadership positions within evangelical Christianity go to Asian American leaders. So obviously there's Tom Lin at University Christian Fellowship, my own organization, uh, Walter Kim at NAE, um, Nikki Toyama-Sato at Christians for Social Action, I am going to forget his name. It might be Julius Kim over at Gospel Coalition and, you know, on and on, right? So that's exciting to see on one level that we're starting to see Asian Americans start to step into those influential positions, which hopefully will do a lot of things, right? It'll hopefully help break some of those stained glass ceilings, bamboo ceilings, as Jane Hyun writes about in her book, as more and more people begin to, to see that and to be inspired by that and continue to work towards those kinds of positions themselves. So over time, hopefully there'll be more representation of Asian Americans in key leadership positions throughout evangelicalism. On the flip side, I don't know that the mere presence of some of these leaders is going to necessarily change the culture, you know, fully of these organizations such that the marginalization that I think many of us still feel and the ways in which we have to continue to battle to be heard or to be seen, to be understood. Those are, I think, ongoing 
tensions that are still very present in any of, for any of us who work in largely majority white evangelical organizations. So I think a question I have, and I don't know the answer to this, but I think that especially as we see the continued fracturing and splintering of evangelicalism, as we've just seen even recently with what's happened in the wake of the insurrection of the Capitol, as we continue to see that word evangelical, you know, being um, bantered about in terms of who wants to be identified with it anymore um, or any longer, will there be new expressions you know, of Christianity that emerge that might be completely different, completely new, completely separate from your typical white evangelical spaces and places. Is there a place and time for Asian Americans to start to create their own spaces that are not necessarily having to be you know, under the umbrella of white evangelicalism? I don't know. I, I wonder if we're getting ready for that because we have plenty of resources, education. There's lots of financial capital out there. There's a lot that Asian American Christians could do if they wanted to start to remove themselves a little bit more from traditional evangelical spaces and places and create something new. I mean, you see that within our colleagues at, in the in the Black church and in Black Christianity. I mean, I see what Jamar Tisby's group and the Witness Foundation is doing, and it sounds like they're not necessarily trying to say, we're going to try to do our work within an umbrella of a white evangelical space or organization anymore. We're going to try to create our own thing because that's where we can finally be able to do it as we please and not feel like we have to kind of work under the throes of white evangelical America. So I don't know if that's going to be where Asian American Christianity could go. I think we have the resources and the, the experience and the skills to start doing that. So I guess it'll be a matter of time to see if we can go that direction or not. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I think there's going to be reasons and needs for us to be in all these kinds of places and spaces, right? Some of us are going to be called to stay in the white evangelical organizations that we are in and try to generate change and lead from those spaces and places. And some of us are gonna be called potentially outside evangelicalism to do a new thing. So we'll see. Wow, Helen, a call for liberation, perhaps? <laughs> well, maybe this, maybe the, maybe it will be an exodus somehow in the end, after all, exodus to a new, to a new place, exodus to new spaces, yeah. new experiences, new organizations. So we'll see. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Thank you so much for giving us your time your journalistic observations and insights of both Asian American Christian history and white evangelicalism. You know, we are a people who are we're in the making. Our history is, um, will hopefully serve us well as we look to the future. So thank you for all that you've shared. We wish you God's richest blessings in your future endeavors. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash centering podcast or your favorite podcast apps. Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.